Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. You are always overly gracious. It's a privilege to be in his auditorium again, isn't it? Our scripture this morning is found in the book of Second Chronicles. I'd like to read two passages, two portions from the sixth chapter of the book of Second Chronicles, reading from beginning with verse 12 and then picking up later at verse 32 from the prayer of Solomon. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, Keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law as you have done. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple, how much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. O Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place, hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but who has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Will you pray with me? 
Our Father, it's a joy to be in your house, in Hughes Auditorium again. We thank you for the many times that you have met us when we have gathered here. And we give you praise for the way you've spoken to us before. Our prayer, Father, is that you will speak again and that you will hear our prayer to this end. And we will give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long ago, I found myself with an assignment to do a series on the book of First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I want to tell you very quickly that Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah are not my cup of tea. There are many portions of the Scripture that I would much rather work with than these. But that was the assignment, so I started. As I sat down to go to work, I remembered something that uh, I had learned across the years. And that was that oftentimes my predispositions about certain passages of Scripture were quite wrong. And the portions of Scripture that when I was young I would have left out of the Bible, I now place a high premium on. And some of the ones that I valued so extremely at earlier days now have fallen into a place where they take their place along with the others. So I wondered if that could happen with this, First and Second Chronicles, and with Ezra and with Nehemiah. So I began to work. Now, the interesting thing is, you know that Ezra and Nehemiah can be, or Chronicles Ezra and Nehemiah can be remarkably boring. Take, for instance, the fact that Chronicles begins with nine chapters of nothing but personal names. In fact, what you have is an almost endless sort of, not ad infinitum, but to many of us at times, sort of almost ad nauseum, just a succession of the genealogies of the human race from Adam on down. And when you get in later into the book of First Chronicles, you find another five chapters. So about half of First Chronicles is made up of an endless list of names. And when you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, it is not a great deal better. But one of the things I felt was, as I worked with it, at least people are important to God, aren't they? And the people that you and I don't know about and don't particularly care about, he keeps a permanent record of them. And I found myself liking that he even knows their names, those who for us are nameless. But I found that it is a story of human history. And it begins with Adam, and it runs down through the centuries all the way to the exile, and then gives you a brief glimpse into that period between the exile, the return, and the coming of Christ. But it's a very unusual view of history. It's very different from Samuel and Kings. Because if you read Samuel and Kings, you will find there's much of the personal lives of the people that are involved there. And so you get the stories of people like Hannah and Samuel and of the stories of Saul and Jonathan, and you get the stories of David and Bathsheba, and you get these stories that let these characters become alive and become persons for us. But uh, apparently the writer of the book of Chronicles assumed that we knew all of that, and so he didn't need to repeat any of that. Because in Chronicles, though he's giving us the history of the world, 
the history of the human race. There's no story of the garden. There's no story really of Abraham. There is no story of Moses and the Exodus. There's not even a story of the conquest. And one could almost say, could a Jew, a descendant, a follower of Moses, actually have written this? But what you get is a story that begins with Adam and goes straight to Saul and tips his hat for one chapter to Saul and plumps you down in the middle of David's life. And then what he tells you about David is that they crowned him first king over two tribes, the southern tribes, and then later over the twelve. And after that, he captured the city of Jerusalem and gave that great city to the Jews and apparently gave it to them forever because I noticed that even the New York Times can't keep Jerusalem off the front page to this day. And you will remember that then we get the story of how he brought the Ark of the Covenant that had within it the tables of the law and that was the symbol of the divine presence to the city of Jerusalem. And then he began to make his plans to build a temple. And so what you do is you go bang from Adam to David, the king, and the temple. Now, uh, you will remember that uh, when David said to God he wanted to build the temple, he told Nathan his prophet, and Nathan came back and said, I've had a communication from God, and God says that you're a man of blood. And it is not right that a man of blood should build my house, and so your son will build it. And I will be a father to your son, and he will be a son to me, and your people will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of your people. I will be Emmanuel, God with you. Now, uh, apparently there is something that the chronicler feels that the purpose of human history is to get the likes of you and me close to God. In fact, every indication from the chronicler is that God likes us. And God likes us enough, he'd like to live with us. And he'd like to live right in the midst of our life. And when we wouldn't come to him, but when we turned our backs on him, he made his plans to come to us and to come to dwell in time and space with us. Now, you know, slowly as I kicked that around, a passage in the New Testament began to come into focus. Do you remember those enigmatic words of Jesus in the, in the cleansing of the temple story in John? You will remember that this was first Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem officially, as far as the Gospels are concerned, after his announcement, after his introduction by John the Baptist, as the Messiah, the one for whom Israel was waiting. You will remember that uh, when he came, he came into the temple and he cleaned house. And after he cleaned house, the priest came to him and said, What right do you have to do this? This is not your house, this is God's house. And Jesus looked back at him. I remember the decades that I puzzled over that. Pull this one down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the disciples noted that and remembered. And after his resurrection, they said, Ah, he was talking about his body. 
And so it began to dawn on me that that temple was a symbol of how close God wants to get to us, but that ultimately he would not be content to live in a house. He wanted to live in flesh and blood just like yours and mine so that God himself could say, I'm one of them. And that was to be the ultimate end of human history. Because you see, if you move on to the book of Revelation, you get the story of a new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. And there is no temple in that new Jerusalem because the Son is there with his bride. And so the chronicler is writing an early chapter of human history in which he says the purpose of it all, though NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN don't know that yet, the purpose of it all is to get God in the midst of his creation and in the midst of his creature's life. Now, this is what the chronicler, I think, was saying to us when he gives us, so that everything in human history up to David was prelude and prelude so that we could come to understand that God wants to give to us himself, not just David, but a kingdom in which David's greater son lives within us, lives among us, and our life is centered around him. So the vision, you see, is of a community centered in God. Now, you know, as I worked with this, I found myself saying, you know, Asbury has helped me to understand some of these things. You will remember that God said to Israel, I want every Jew three times a year to come up to Jerusalem. Because you will forget all this out there in the boonies if you don't come up occasionally to my house and meet me here. So three times a year, it is required of every Jew to come up. John Wesley Hughes said three times a year is not enough. Three times a week, so we have chapel in Hughes Auditorium three times a week. And you and I lived in the years that we were students in college in a community that was built around this sanctuary. And it was built around the presence of God. And how much richer our lives because of that. But now, as you read Chronicles, you will find that it's not easy for God to get along with men. <laughs> he likes us, but we're a problem for him. And that problem is rather intense. You know, I've tried to find a word to describe it, and I located a scientific word that I know nothing about as far as the scientific meaning is concerned. But uh, it is now used in non-scientific areas. It is the word of the principle of entropy. Now, if that's not a part of your daily conversation and your communication with your wife, let me tell you about it. The definition that I found that I liked that fitted what I wanted to say was a process of steady degradation and disorganization of a system or a society. Anywhere you have a society that has within it a principle at work that leads to disorganization and disintegration, 
entropy is at work. And what a graphic description of God's relationship to us and of our relationship to him. Now, I'm convinced that Chronicler knew a lot of things that he doesn't tell us because he never told us about the flight of man from Eden into exile. And he never told us about God's incredible redemption of Israel and it was only a matter of a few weeks and they were making golden calves to worship and to anger him. And that marvelous, miraculous entry into the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and it wasn't too long until we find ourselves in the book of Judges with noble characters like Samson and some others. But uh, he was fully aware that that principle was at work. Because as you read him, you will find that the story of First and Second Chronicles is a story of God's perpetual effort to overcome the spiritual entropy at work among his people. The end result is that as you read it, you will get a period when you had a good king. And then you will have one who's not so good. And then you'll get one who's just downright evil. And say so you get a David who was noble with his bad moments, but nevertheless, the pattern of his life was, was amazingly good. And then you get a Solomon who started out so well, and then he turned and lived in his sensuality and satisfaction of his own ego. And then you get a Rehoboam, and the kingdom is shattered and divided, and it has never been pulled together again. Now, that kind of principle at work like this in human society, so the chronicler was a realist. And you and I have a lot of data in our banks to support the fact that that was true, not just back then, but true now. All you have to do is look at our own nation, for one thing, and watch the disintegration that is taking place in our society. You see it in uh, denominations. It's interesting that today you can get a more moral rebuke to American society out of the Wall Street Journal than out of the Council of Bishops usually. Or you see it in institutions. A fellow came to me the other day and told me he was thinking about going to seminary. It was not the one across the street. and So I said, uh, let me see the catalog. I knew pretty well what was there, at least I thought I did, but uh, I picked up the catalog and read it, and it's one of the major seminaries in the United States that primarily has trained men for the mainline denominations, men and women, so I read through and found, a, could not find anywhere in the entire catalog the word evangelism, but I found that the major chair of theology was the Charles Grandison Finney Chair of Theology. And you get a little bit of feeling that somebody has departed from his origins. 
And you and I know that that can happen to individuals. Because when you and I gather here, we think back to classmates. Just a month ago, I met the son of an Asbury student with whom I was in a prayer group for a year. One of the most gifted preachers I ever heard. And he died a drug addict in one of our major cities. And last week I got a phone call from an Asbarian who said, I'm in my 40s. My story is not a good one. Is there a new hope for me? You know, I love the fact that they can't scrub Asbury out of their memory. Wait a minute, let me reword that. That we can't scrub Asbury out of our memory because we've seen something and we've heard something. Now, you know, uh, I, as I was thinking about this, I thought of the hymn that Robert Robinson gave to us. You remember? great familiar hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Praise. You see, if He's the fount of every blessing, and all good things are in Him, my whole life ought to be oriented toward Him, and I ought to be waiting expectantly for what He can give to me. But Robert Robinson wrote, Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart. Oh, take, oh, seal it, seal it for thy court. Above. So what the Chronicles tells us is not limited to that ancient day. It was true in the 18th century when Robert Robinson wrote that. And it's still true for us today. Now that explains something in Chronicles that I found myself very interested in. Chronicles is the story of declension, but it is also the story of revival. And if you will read First and Second Chronicles, you will find that the high points are always revival times. And so you get the names of men like Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah, who looked at their people and said, we must come back to God because he is the fount of, our, of every blessing. Now, you know... Uh, We've lived through a period when people don't get too enthusiastic, a lot of people, about revivals. I had a friend who was telling me about being in a symposium in a Christian university not too long ago on the Christian university. And they had a major Reformed theologian there, who my count to some extent is a personal friend, and... Uh, after they had made their presentation about what they felt a Christian university should be, they asked him for his comment. Well, he said, you know, I'm not an American. I believe in 
that these uh, Christian colleges and universities, they're good institutions, but I do get a little irritated with these spasmodic revival, or these periodic revival spasms that interrupt the academic calendar. Tom Oden was there and looked up and said he liked that expression, revival spasm. Because he said as best he could find, that was what John Wesley was all about. And you know, that's what Chronicles is all about. How do we get the entropy, that principle of disintegration and disorganization overcome in our lives? Now, we'd like to think it satisfies our ego that we could come to know God and have that steady progressive growth in grace and in Christian character and development until we are what God wants us to be. But the reality is that that is not the usual experience of most of us. We find those momentary occasions when we deeply need God to come and do something new and something fresh and something transforming again within us. Now that helped me understand something about Asbury too because apparently John Wesley Hughes had read Chronic. So he decided that every fall, the first thing you did was have a fall revival. And in those days, there was only one church in town, really, and that was a Methodist church. And they said, let them go home for Christmas, and we'll need one as soon as they get back. <laughs> and so those of us that are that old, we lived with a revival in the fall and another one in January. And in, for many of us, it was in those revivals sessions, that the great decisions, the great covenants of our lives were established. Now, uh, you know that should not be so strange to us, because if you are going to keep close to God and know all of his goodness that he has for you, there will of necessity be a tension within your life. You'll have to be on the stretch. There'll have to be a hunger, an appetite that has to be cultivated and developed. And there'll have to be an openness and a seeking that stays. But you know, the tendency of life is to relax. Every good music conductor understands that. And that's the reason before any good concert, the orchestra director will say, now tune your instruments, and what bedlam takes place. I was reading in John Wesley Hughes, and some of his critics said, you know that hole in his school down there where they're crying? They uh, weep around, and I thought, well, that may have been true of the students in the old days. It's true of alumni now when they come back. But you know, that tune-up session is not exactly aesthetic. But you get the instrument right. And then some magnificent things can be produced. And so it was a part of the tradition back then 
And it was that part of the tradition that made it possible for you and me to be here today. Because it was those who came to know that periodic movement of the Spirit afresh upon the people of God that maintained the treasures of this truth for us. And so God found it necessary to raise up occasionally a prophet or a priest who could speak to the leaders and tell them the word of God. And so you get men like a Micaiah. You get an almost unknown character like Jehaziel. Or you get one like Zechariah, whose father saved the life of Joash, the boy king. But when Zechariah spoke the word of God to Joash, Joash turned and killed the son of the man who made it possible for him to be king. But periodically there were those who could see clearly and those who could think clearly and speak clearly. Now, uh, how'd they do that? How'd they break the pattern? How did they keep from being caught in that disintegrative principle, disorganizing principle? Here I found something very interesting in Chronicles and Kings that is not found to my knowledge anywhere in the Old Testament. It is a concept of the heart that God is looking for. Now, it's translated in the NIV, God is looking for someone who will wholly follow him. But it's interesting, the Hebrew is to me much more intriguing. You know what it is? God is looking for, let me use the Hebrew, a lave or a lavav shalem. And lave and lavav are the two Hebrew words for heart. And shalem, as you would anticipate, comes from the same root as the word shalom. And so he says, and it's an adjective describing the heart, I want you to have a heart of peace. But now if you read the Old Testament, you will find that the word shalom, shalom, has very little to do in itself with tranquility. But really the word, the root from which shalom comes, has to do with something that is finished, completed, done. And so you get the Semitic root shalamo, and that's what it means. And so the tranquility that comes, comes because the battle is over. It has been fought and settled and won that a man is decided or a woman is decided that he or she will be totally God's. And they will break the pattern of the world around them. Now, I think John Wesley Hughes would have said, you know, that's what we're all about. <laughs> that's the reason on the cornerstone out here, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, no person shall see the Lord. Now, how did they get there? How did they break the pattern? I searched a bit to find out what Chronicle says. 
And I found the answer, I think, in uh, a prayer of David's, where he uses this expression and he's praying for his son, Solomon. He says, let me read just a few verses to get a flavor of David's heart. Everything comes from you, and we've given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Our Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we've provided for building you a temple for your God, for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart, and you are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever, and keep their hearts loyal to you, and give my son Solomon a lave shalane. Translation here is, and give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build a palatial structure for which for which I have provided. And so David says, out of all the things that I'd like for you to give my son, I'd like for you to give my son a heart that you've captured and that you possess, and that you possess wholly. I don't know about anybody else, but do you know what I think David was saying? He'll never make it on his own. If he ever gets a heart like that, it will be a gift from you. Because what we're talking about is the ultimate step in salvation. And all salvation comes from you, O God. There is none in us. And if he's to have a lave shalem, a heart that's right before you, fully yours, wholly yours, you are going to have to do it within him. And do you know, uh, that's what John Wesley Hughes believed. He believed there was something in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that could overcome the recalcitrance in your heart and mine and bring us to the place where we love him above all other things and where he is the fulfillment and the end of our existence. No longer a divided heart. No longer any question, will I do his will? The only question left is, O oh God, what is your will? Show it to me that I may do it. That's interesting. There were a number of people in Kings and Chronicles that have this kind of heart attributed to them. And the interesting thing is that Every time one of these occurs, the spiritual level of the entire people rises because there is something incredibly creative about a heart that's holy God. 
in that same symposium on the university, the man who was uncomfortable with uh, these revival spasms that occasionally interrupt the academic calendar in Christian institutions said, you know, I'm not a Wesleyan. I'm closer to George Whitfield than I am to the Wesleys. But he said, we have to admit that Wesley was a great man, great preacher, great expositor. I was glad to hear him say that. He said, a great evangelist, a great trainer of preachers, and a man whose life had a remarkable character of joy and praise in it. And then he said this. He said, we have to admit that there is something very expanding about the impact of Wesleyan piety on a human individual when he or she comes under its heavy influence. In fact, he said, there was something in the Wesleyan tradition that was able to produce a Christian ethos without equal. He said, I do not stand in the Wesleyan tradition, but I know no other tradition that could produce so great an impact. He said, the great tragedy of the 20th century is that we've seen so little of it. Now, there is something that happens when a person gets free from himself or herself and belongs wholly to God. You know, they see things they never saw before. <laughs> they find themselves in places they've never been before. <laughs> they find themselves privileged to do things. They would have totally missed before. You know, the great privilege of being president at Asbury was the privilege of meeting the people who spoke on this platform and getting to know them. I remember one, Helen Roosevelt, pulled out a tape the other day and listened and brought back an incredible story. She said, I had to leave Zaire to take a missionary to Uganda to catch a flight to Britain. It was a long trip, and so we rose at four in the morning. We're on our way at four. Ten o'clock that night, we pulled into the place in Uganda, and at midnight, my friend flew out to England. She said the next morning, I got up at four o'clock and headed back for Zaire. She said it was absolute delight to ride on a paved road. She said it was all macadam and there wasn't a living soul anywhere within sight or consciousness except me. Now she said, I was never willing to put Christian stickers on my car bumper lest I disgrace the Lord with my driving. So she said, I was barreling down that highway as fast as that thing would go and loving every second of it. She said, I did that for two hours, and about six o'clock I found myself very sleepy. And I used all of the traditional means of waking, and they didn't work, so I knew I had to stop for a coffee jolt. 
So she said, I saw some bushes up ahead and I pulled up and stopped and got out to go back and fix my coffee when to my surprise and disappointment there stood an African. (laughs) He hadn't been anywhere in sight when I pulled up. There he was. I don't know where he came from. And she said, last thing in the world I wanted to see was another human being, and particularly an African at that point. She said, you have to be polite. So she said, I was polite. He was polite. When she said he didn't leave, he just stood there. And she said, could I help you? He said, are you a sent one? And she stared and said, beg your pardon? He said, are you a sent one? And she said, I thought, I'm a missionary. The Latin verb missio means I send. So I looked back at him and said, yes, I'm a sent one. Then he said, can you tell me about the great God and Jesus? She said the way he spoke was the syntax of his Swahili. I knew that he didn't know whether Jesus was a rock, a flower, or a bird. But he's asking me, can I tell him about the great God and about Jesus? So she said, I said, sir, can you read? He said, oh, no. He was the shepherd of his family flocks. And so she said, I pulled out the wordless book. Now, what I love is a Cambridge doctor who uses the wordless book. Because I hope you know what it is. It has four pages in it. The first page is black and not a word. And the second page is red and not a word. And the third page is white and not a word. And the fourth page is green and not a word. And she said, you know, the beautiful thing about people who can't read is they can remember So I taught him all the verses for the black page. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. She said, I went on to the second page. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. She said, I went to the third page. He makes us white as, she said, I couldn't say white as snow. So I said, why is the cotton in your garden? She said, then I told him about the green, the glorious hope that's ours of eternal life in heaven with God. And she said, I watched him grasp. And I watched one of those aliens (laughs) that Solomon spoke about enter into the very family of God. I watched the miracle take place in front of my eyes. And she said, when we finished praying, I looked at him and said, Sir, why did you ask me if I was a sent one? He said, well, I have a brother-in-law who's a wicked man. He's a school teacher. 
She said, he drinks a lot. And the other day, he came home in the middle of the day. And we found out he was not at school. He'd stopped at the bar and gotten a good load up. And we said, why are you home? He said, well, we don't have classes today. We have had some people to come to tell our students about the great God and Jesus. He said, you know, I couldn't get that out of my mind. I kept saying, a great God and Jesus. And he said, you know, there was something sweet about that word. And I couldn't quit saying it. Jesus. So when I saw you, I thought that you perhaps were one of those that the great God had sent to tell me about his son. Now, you know, the interesting thing is that Israel was the chosen people. But, you know, they weren't chosen so they could receive. They were chosen so they could give. And they were sent into the world so that the world could know about the one true and living God. The Episcopal clergyman, Sam, oh, come on, David, what? used to come to Princeton when we were there. He'd come once a year. And he, uh, the boys in the seminary would all go over to hear him. Some of us remember watching him climb that high pulpit, Sam Shoemaker, and stand and look down, opening words in his address to that Gothic cathedral chapel full of Princetonians. Looked down and said, sort of thunderingly, You princes of privilege. In front of him was an especially privileged audience. As you know, I don't know any audience in the world more privileged than the audiences that have sat in this auditorium. No credit to us. It's the credit to those that have gone before us, that have left us a word, that have left us a witness, and that have left us an example of hearts, shalane, fully possessed, owned by God. Who knew peace? Because the battle was over. The conflict was settled. They were all his. It's interesting, there are two expressions, two words in Chronicles that keep occurring. One of them is the word covenant. It's very clear that the Chronicles felt that anybody who knew God would be was in covenant with him. God was obligated to him and he was obligated to God or she. The other word is unfaithful. Chronicler never talks about individual sin. 
He doesn't say, this guy did like David. He doesn't mention David and Bathsheba. He just simply says they were unfaithful. And that's what brought the judgment of God. You know, as I got ready for this this morning, I thought, the thing that characterized our days when we were students here was covenant. We made them. We made them at this altar. And God brings us back to the holy city, (laughs) to Jerusalem, because he wants to refresh those commitments. And let us go back into a world that needs to hear about this kind of God. Because we, whether we want to be or not, we are sent one. You know, as I got to thinking about that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, I thought about that last line. Oh, to great, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Is that what Robinson was crying for? My heart's a lame. Seal it. Seal it for that course of us. How about your covenant this morning?